this is Sophie Wilson, and you are listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. By supporting the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast on patreon.com slash slowboatsailing, you can get free bonus episodes and audiobooks. This episode, we feature an interview with Jean-Luc Vandenheed after I briefly talk about the Golden Globe race up to this point. Thanks for listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. My name is Linus Wilson. On this episode of the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast for February 2019, I'm going to talk about the new direction for the YouTube channel and for the podcast itself. I'll talk about that after I talk about the finish to the 2018 Golden Globe race in Le Sable Lone, France. Just south of the Azores High in the North Atlantic Ocean, Jean-Luc was trying to get to the west side, and Mark Slats, the Dutchman, so Jean-Luc Vandenheed is the French leader of the race. He's led the race for most of the race, uh, certainly since Cape Town, and he had seen his lead collapse that Mark Slats had really outsailed him since Jean-Luc had damaged his mast in a pitch pole before he got to Cape Horn. And Jean-Luc was able to repair it with kind of duct tape and or lines that allowed the shrouds to be reasonably tight, but it still made him vulnerable to upwind work, especially on the port tack. So he had mostly downwinds until he got to the Atlantic, but he was definitely favoring his starboard tack, and he was not going as fast as he was that allowed him to get that 2,000 nautical mile lead in the Pacific Ocean. And, you know, he had some bad luck in terms of a wind hole right before the Azores High that allowed Mark Slats to really cut into the lead such that there was one point where he was within 10 nautical miles of the distance to finish. The thing was, was that uh, Jean-Luc was taking the traditional sailing route that you go to the west side of the Azores High. That gives you the north winds that will propel you to the westerlies in the the North Atlantic Ocean, right? So you, you're out of the trade wind belt, you want to get to the westerly belt, which propels you to Europe and La Sable France. For some reason, Mark Slats's team thought it was better to use Slats's remaining reserves to try to motor through the Azores High. And this is conjecture, but it is supported by the posts of Mark Slats team and the actual, what we observed from the tracker. And Mark Slats went slowly in a straight line through the Azores High in the no-wind zone, but he could have very easily gone to the west side at the Azores High and followed in Jean-Luc's path. Well, by the Azores High, Jean-Luc just kind of found another gear for his sailing. So before he was going about five knots after the the accident, and he was going six to seven knots consistently after he got to the west side of the Azores High. And I don't think that's explained entirely by the wind. I think that's also explained by the fact that he just let out all the stops. That at that point, they had about a 3,000 nautical mile lead over third place competitor. They had only about 1,000 miles to go. And so I think Jean-Luc made a strategic decision to say, you know, I got to outsail Mark. He's going to overtake me if I if I play it too safe, most likely. And so I need to outsail him and I can't, you know, baby the mast anymore. And so he seemed to do that. And 
he opened up what was a, a 400 nautical mile lead at one point. And really the only thing that separated him from the Golden Globe race trophy and first place and the finish was a storm in the Bay of Biscay, right? So Bay of Biscay is nor notorious for having storms, especially in the wintertime, and they tend to throw up really steep waves. He had a nine-meter wave storm that he went straight through uh, without avoiding it at all, without really slowing down at all, and he made it into La Sable de Lone on January 29th at 10:12 a.m. to the adoring crowds and the just a tremendous scrum of French media. It was it was amazing. Not only they they traditionally in La Sable de Lone where they have the Vendée Globes, they have people uh, lining the dock walls, but you should have seen the media scrum that he had on his dock there was just no room for him to move when they were opening the champagne uh, but he shattered the record of sir robin knox johnston who was there to greet him uh, of course his wife and manager were also there and uh, don mcintyre a former guest of the slow boat sailing podcast and and the founder and the organizer uh, and chairman of the golden globe race 2018 and you know he, he he just did a tremendous sailing job uh now mark slats you know had that tactical error trying to cut the corner not hitting the westerlies trying to go you know south uh, you know too far south not going north enough not getting enough northing so he can get the westerlies and he tried to cut the corner a 400-mile lead opened up. It was really a 300-mile lead, really right until the finish. And then all craziness broke out right before the finish. So there was kind of like unstable weather reports of another storm. So Mark avoided the storm that Jean-Luc went through. Uh, but there was another one that was supposedly going to go through. He got a weather warning for that. His manager had his own ideas. Dick Koopmans, I believe, is the manager of, and these are based on reports from the Golden Globe and also based on posts by Mark's team. Dick Koopmans uh, consulted a meteorologist. He, he felt that, uh, that the advice of the Golden Globe was dangerous, uh, that the advice was that the Golden Globe thought that the best course for Mark was to go as fast as possible into La Sable alone, and he would miss the projected front. Um, but Mark's team thought his best course uh, was to go and anchor in La Coruna, Spain. That's admissible. Several competitors have done that to avoid weather um, in Australia, and he could have done that. And the Golden Globe was also willing to convey the message from the manager. But instead, Slat's manager contacted him directly. Slat's ended up getting a 36-hour time penalty for that. And as it turned out, his diversion to La Coruna was abandoned because the weather report that was it, it was based on, the storm did not materialize, was not going to materialize. The weather report seemed to give him clear path to La Sable de Lone if he just went straight there. And so that's what he ended up doing as so at the time I'm recording this um, on January 30th, 2019, uh, he's expected 
in on the 1st of February, and uh, I don't see any reason why he won't make it. Uh, but he'll have that 36-hour time penalty. You know, I think one of the kind of conflicts uh, that that Mark Slats, his team, has had is that Mark Slats did not have a ham radio license, but he was using ham radio frequencies and was told to stop doing that by Dutch authorities. And so that was about the same time that they were, you know, approaching the Azores high. And so Mark Slats kind of stopped getting those ham uh, weather reports. He could use marine frequencies, but he was uh, used to getting reports from uh, shoreside ham frequencies. And when he was kind of cut off from the ham, he was also cut off with, from more communications. You're not allowed to use your sat phone. Something that I disagree with, I, I think that's a mistake. My personal opinion is that all the informational rules in the Golden Globe are not a good idea. That yes, there are safety precautions. And yes, that the Golden Globe can use satellite phones to talk to the competitors, but the competitors are not allowed to talk to anybody else besides the Golden Globe or rescue authorities with their sat phones. Um, I think it just opens up all kinds of problems. I think if you look at most of the penalties that have been imposed in the Golden Globe race, they are due to illegal satellite phone usages and the banning of satellite phones. Um, I think it just detracts from the event, uh, makes it more unnecessarily more difficult on the competitors without really saving any money. But anyways, in this context where, you know, Slats kind of is n not getting as much information as he was used to, uh, and Jean-Luc is still uh, reportedly getting reports over the weather, and then there's disputes about what is the definition of weather routing and what is not uh, versus people observing from the outside versus what the Golden Globe race headquarters says is a definition of weather routing. All these types of informational rules are just germane only to the Golden Globe race, uh, but they, they add to the arguments detract from the achievements of the competitors sailing these 32 to 36 foot good old boats, old boats with full keels, these slow boats, and they're just amazing journeys. And, and I just, I think it's just too much of a sideshow in my personal opinion. And it also just makes it harder on the competitors, harder on their families, harder on anybody that wants to support them. Uh, and I, there's no, I think there's no comparable rule set in ocean sailing where information is so much banned as it is in the Golden Globe. And I don't, I don't like banning information. Uh, I don't think you can bring back 1968. There's no doubt in my mind that the Golden Globe competitors had great advantages, that weather today is so much better than weather was in uh 1968, because we have satellites. We have lots more observational tools. The weather forecasts are based on computer models that were not available in 1968. And so even though they're using their radios to get the weather reports, the weather reports that they get are much better. They have much better communications, even with the, the satellite phone ban. So I don't think you, you can look at the achievement of, for instance, Jean-Luc Vandenheed, that he was 100 days faster 
and that's a credit to his sailing ability. But it also reflects that we're in a different time. Uh, the weather information that Jean-Luc had is much better. Uh, the knowledge of Southern Ocean sailing is much better. You just There's just no comparison, I think, to, to pioneers, people who do things for the first time versus, you know, the 300th time. And I don't want to take anything away from Jean-Luc. I think he's a tremendous sailor. He's a tough sailor. He was always a happy sailor, and he did a great job. Job. And uh, there are there are four other competitors: Mark Slats, Uku Randama, um, Istvan Kopar, and uh, Tapio Lenton. And uh, Tapio's not rounded Cape Horn yet. The other two have. They're about three to four thousand miles from the finish. Uh, they've yet to enter the northern hemisphere. And so the the penalty that Slats got is not going to affect whether he goes from uh, second place to third. Third place. There's a race for third place between uh, Istvan, the Hungarian-American, and uh, Ugu Randama, the Estonian. But, uh, you know, they're, they're not in contention for second. But good for Don McIntyre creating a great event. And uh, so far, so good. Uh, we hope the safe return to all the competitors. And uh, we'll be watching them in the coming months. I've got a video about the finish that you may have already seen. You should check that out on the Slow Boat Sailing YouTube channel. Got lots of other videos about that. The monthly vlog should come out next week. And you'll get to see Jana and Sophie in Tahiti. And there's some offshore passage there too. And my plan for season two of the vlog finishing up is that I think we'll probably have this month's episode, then the, a March episode, and then an April episode. And that'll be it. Uh, I think that's up to episode 21. So we'll have two episodes with Jan and Sophie, and then one of me uh, laying up the boat. Okay, I want to introduce the interview with Jean-Luc, which I'll play before I talk about the direction for the podcast and the YouTube channel. And one thing that I want to add, so this was right after he finished. And after that, the Golden Globe race, due to questions of people looking at some pictures of Jean-Luc Bandenheat's mask, had a statement. And I'll, I'll read their statement right now. Update a small piece of line on the mass repair Spectra high-tech fiber. There are two standard approvals given for high-tech lines on GGR boats. One, any commercial wind vane supplied as standard with high-tech lines are approved. Two, a small amount of high-tech webbing and line may be allowed on application. John Luke Bannon Heap was approved to use his high-tech line in the leech line of the sails. On occasions, other dispensations are allowed. John Luke Vandenheet, a few days before sailing to Falmouth for the parade of sail in June 2018, could not buy original log towing lines. He checked with GGR about making new custom lines. GGR confirmed it is okay to make new lines of any material. Jean-Luc made a new line of Spectra and used one log towing line to assist with the repair of his broken shrouds on the mast after he was pitch-pulled in the Southern Ocean 1,900 nautical miles from Cape Horn. And he used that repair to finish the race, finish first in 212 days. Okay, so the issue here is that, the, once again, the retro rules are casting aspersions on the achievements of Jean-Luc and, and uh, Mark Slats. And in this case, it seems like Jean-Luc was allowed to have high-tech fibers, which were against the notice of race. Potentially, other competitors, such as Mark Slats or 
Rondema could say, well, why was he allowed to have high-tech fibers and I was not? That being said, I think Jean-Luc's achievement was amazing. Uh, I totally support that yachtsmen should have Spectre fibers on their boat, and what he did was great seamanship, and good for him that he had those lines on the boat uh, bad for the race by banning them, because had he not had them on, that could have been the sixth or the fifth rescue, sixth uh, boat to lose its mast, and it was great that Jean-Luc had the presence of mind to get approvals to get those on, and he was able to use them to sail into La Sable de Lone. Okay, here's the interview with Jean-Luc Vandenheed. I'm circumnavigator, world record holder in the Golden Globe, and sailing around the world the wrong way, solo nonstop. I, I wanted to congratulate you on a wonderful race. I enjoyed following it. I wanted to ask you about the problems that you had in November, the storm, and then the pitch pole. If you could maybe set the scene of uh, what what happened when your boat flipped. First, uh, my problem was that it was too much perpendicular to the wind, and uh, I was about uh, 120 degrees of the wind uh, instead of to be 180. And uh, I was rolled by a wave and the mat going to water, and the boat come come back immediately. Doesn't stay down. He says, "Come back immediately." And when he come back, I saw that the mat was about like a spaghetti. The the shrouds were loose. When you say the mast was like spaghetti, yes, because the rigging, uh, the the shaft in, uh, of the D one, the first uh, the first wire coming from the first rider to the to the boat. Okay. Uh, the, there is a shaft. Across the mast, the shaft was uh, bent uh, at about uh, 30, 40 degrees from the horizontal. So the left wire was very, very bad. <laughs> <laughs> when this happened, you were down below? Yes, I was sleeping, yes. What kind of storm was it that you were in? What was the conditions when you um, went to bed? Hard to say for me because I, uh, we had no electronics, so I had no anemometer, I had no nothing to measure the wind. But uh, they say in the forecast that there was the sea was between nine and eleven meters, and uh, the wind was going fifty knots with gusts uh, to sixty. Okay, so it was a bad storm. It was a bad storm. And if you look the chart at the time, I, I looked the chart uh, yesterday night. Somebody showed me because he prints the chart. It was the worst low pressure. <laughs> you mentioned that you were going 120 degrees, not 180 degrees from the wind. Do you think that was part of the problem? That uh, you you wanted to oh, run yes, dead, because, dead uh, downwind. Immediately when I had the problem, I go 180 degrees with quite no sail, just uh, the stay the sail with about uh, one square meter of stay sail uh, exactly in the axis of the boat, and uh, I go downwind immediately. Uh, it was quite nice. It, it was like that uh, when this wave arrived. I probably I have no problem, but I was not enough down. And after you were rolled in your bunk, was there a lot of water that came into the boat or not really? All the lookers were able to be completely uh, closed and cannot move. But uh, 
but uh, even like that, you still have uh, you can see the floors are screws and so on. So it was not a bigness, but it was uh, it was because the water came in and and the <laughs> boat is not is not meant to be knocked down. <laughs> the race chairman Don McIntyre described what happened to you as a pitch pole that the boat went stern first. Do you think that's accurate? That you oh, were yes, not yes. 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 Your your boat was flipped from bow to stern, or stern to bow. Also, yes. Yeah. I was interested in the repairs that you made. I got to see some of them uh, that Christoph had taken, and I'd heard the descriptions. But maybe you could tell me, how many times did you climb the mast, yeah. uh, tighten up the wires, the shrouds? Five, five times. Five times in the Southern Ocean, in, in the Pacific, after the damage, and uh, twice in the, in the Atlantic to reinforce a little bit with a rope around side the mast. What was the tape that you used to tighten it up? What kind of tape was that? Oh, the tape was only to protect the rope I make uh, to try to take the wire better, but uh, it was just a protection. It was not solid enough to make anything. Okay. But it is a good tape. It is a special tape uh, for, for outside uh, using, and it's a good one, especially over that, because I know that it is a good one. But it is just a uh, tape to protect from the UV. You understand? UV. What would... UV to protect the, the rope. Yes, yeah. What was the worst conditions that you climbed the mast in? What were the biggest seas that you climbed the mast in when you were making your oh, repairs? Yes. In, in the Pacific, the sea is always uh, three meters, even if there is a nice weather, you know, uh, never have flat sea. The, when I climbed the mast, uh, it was just after the, the, the slow pressure, so the, the, the sea was around, I don't know, three or four meters high. But the waves were not dangerous, you know, the, 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 the boat was going up and down, but uh, not with dangerous waves. But even with the three and four meters, uh, it's a work to, to climb the mast for an old man like me. <laughs> well, I think for anyone. I guess this is not your first round-the-world solo race, and you hold a record doing that against the prevailing winds. Is it pretty common for you to have to climb the mast at, at some point in these races? The, 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 the boat, when I go around the world in the wrong way, was a boat meant especially for that. It is completely different. These kind of boats that we have for the UTGR are boats who are blue water boats, not boats to go to the Gabon, you know? <laughs> it, is, uh, it is quite difficult. This, uh, I think this race was harder than to go around the world in the wrong way, I think. <laughs> For me, I was more I was more tired with that than, uh, than uh, when I come back from the from first it is longer, it takes a long time. One of the things that Don McIntyre mentioned was that your mast is a lot shorter than other of the Rustler yes, masts. Yes. You had a special yes. mast. Why yes. did you choose yes. a smaller yes. mast? I do that because when I tried the boat, I, I had a long time to try the boat. And when I tried the boat, uh, I saw that we have to reduce the sail very quickly. I saw that there, 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 there is too much sail on, on, the, on the, this kind of boat. He, he, this kind of boat is going at its maximum speed, and as he is at its maximum speed, he cannot go faster. So it is not necessary to have three square meters more. It 
it is the speed of the boat, you cannot go faster. Perhaps you can go 0.001 knots more, but you cannot go half a knot more. So when I saw that, I said, well, to go where we are going, I think it would be better to have less weight on, on the top of the boat and to have a reduced mass. And today I am absolutely sure that if I had the same mass than the other rustler in the red, I, I will not reduce the red. The mass will broke and, uh, and it will be like Suzy, I will be uh, obliged to, or a week or the other, uh, put a curie ring and come back in the harbor. And could you tell me about your thinking when you were getting around the Azores high I was watching your race, and it seemed like you were going a lot slower than you were in the beginning of the race for much of uh, yes. Cape Horn and the Atlantic. Uh, because, uh, as soon as my match has a problem, I was going slower than, than what I can when I have my match uh, normally uh, fixed, because my problem was that uh, I was very careful. Most of the time, I have one, when I was both sides with, uh, I have a reef in the mainsail, instead of having the full mainsail, and instead to have one reef, I take two reefs. I always slow down the boat a little bit too. I'd like to take a moment to reflect on the three years uh, that we've been doing this podcast. You know, I started this podcast in part to launch my second book, How to Sail Around the World Part-Time. And that was the first episode, was the first chapter of that book about the the start of the part-time round-the-world trip. Since then, this is the 57th episode that has happened at least once a month. I think maybe there was one calendar month that I was like a, a few hours off, if you look at the stats, from every calendar month. but that was only due to time zone problems and the way that the podcast interprets time zones. So I've basically done a monthly podcast or more frequent for three years. And that's a lot of work. And quite frankly, I don't think it's justified. In addition to that, since episode 10, I've been doing bonus episodes, which are typically about 20 minutes, uh, that I'm giving free to patrons, sometimes 30 minutes. You know, my goal for the podcast is always to make it less than an hour, somewhere between a half hour and an hour long, so it's not too long that people can't get through it. And I uh, thought that, in, in general, most of them have been between 45 minutes and an hour long. But that also meant that my interviews were typically an hour long, and so I put the bonus interviews uh, for patrons as a premium feature to help defray some of the costs of the, the program. Now, I have no evidence that the patrons actually appreciate the bonus episodes. So for that reason, today I'm going to announce that I'm going to suspend bonus episodes. I'm also going to suspend having a podcast every calendar month because it's basically just too much work for me. Given that I've been seeing diminishing support from the audience in terms of monetary support for that, and I, you know, I count the monetary support um, generally from the patronage and also the advertising. We lost all our advertising sponsors uh, for their own reasons, uh, but we don't have any right now. And without an advertising sponsor, I don't think that the podcast, you know, is has enough financial support. 
Now, I think our advertising rates are really low, that they're half of what the national average is, which is $20 per 20. It's actually $25, I think, per thousand listeners. And our advertising rate is about $9 per thousand listeners, something like that. So that's half the rate. And there's every evidence that my audience, the people that are listening to this podcast right now, are more affluent than the average podcast listener. Uh, and their their advertising dollars are more valuable. So if you, if you look at, uh, for instance, what people pay to advertise to sailors on YouTube, they're paying at least twice or more than the average rates that other creators on YouTube are suggesting because the sailing audience is older and more affluent and it's a more valuable audience to reach than, for instance, the gaming audience where you have maybe teenagers or something as your target audience. Uh, so there's no reason that this podcast should be have advertising rates below the national average or no advertisers at all. And I've, I've tried to make the case that we do need some sort of financial support uh, from advertisers or listeners to really justify my time. And I'll, I'll tell you my reasoning for that is that I don't need money. Um, you know, I do not support myself through the YouTube channel, the books, or the podcast, not in any way, shape, or form. And the YouTube channel and the podcast are probably losers in terms of they lose money. That I spend more on storage, spend more up money uploading the podcasts over the summers. That's something else I'm going to suspend. So I spend a lot of money and waste a lot of time on my cruises to upload a monthly podcast. I'm going to suspend that because we don't have a, enough support from patrons or from our advertisers to justify the expense of me uploading a podcast in uh, May, June, and July while I am in foreign countries uh, using pay-as-you-go internet. So I've been listening to the, the sailing podcast from the beginning of podcasting. And at first, it was just a totally charitable endeavor that the audience really didn't support it at all. And that was fine, for instance, with Podcast Away, that he just wanted to tell about his voyage. And we've done many more episodes than Podcast Away. We mentioned them as an inspiration for me personally, because he's, he did a similar voyage to what I'm doing in the South Pacific. You know, if you look at the podcast that came after that, that really ended, oh, about eight years ago, they occasionally the, the person would get a few free books out of that, but certainly not to justify his very valuable time. Even with all the money I've made from both the publishing and the Patreon and the advertising revenues from YouTube, I, I'm certain that I would have made more working a minimum wage job for the time that I put into that. So it's not it's not anything about money. I but I do think as somebody with a PhD in financial economics, I do think that you have to look at how much value your efforts are creating and if the if there's not evidence that the audience values it enough to pay for it, pay for the cost of its production in any way, then I don't think that you should continue to supply. So as I've said many times that my wife's salary, my salary, we both have full-time jobs, 100% pays for our living expenses, 100% pays for our boning expenses. And anybody that says otherwise is just being a jerk.
And I think there's all kinds of evidence that this podcast is really popular within its genre. So, for instance, another podcast uh, cited a blog that ranked the top podcast, and that ranked us second uh, behind a podcast that had done many more podcasts than we had, hundreds of more podcasts than we have. And that's because I focused on the quality of the podcast very highly. I'd like to produce a very high quality podcast. I spend a ton of time editing the podcast. I spend a lot of time getting very interesting guests and focusing the podcast on those interesting guests. But unfortunately, there's not been a lot of reward for me for doing that. That, you know, I've had so many people with huge social media followings that have come on this podcast, but the number of those individuals who ever did anything to introduce me to their audience the way that I introduced them to my audience, maybe two or three, four, something like that, a very small number of people that helped build my audience while I helped build their audience. And for every hour I spent interviewing someone, I spend 10 hours editing that interview. So it's not a fair trade for me in terms of even building an audience beyond thinking about the monetary benefits of what an audience is worth. So what I'm saying is I'm not going to end the podcast, but I'm not going to do it on a calendar month basis anymore. And I think if you look at, uh, you know, most of the podcasts, sailing podcasts that were created, most have suspended anything close to monthly podcasts that most have more or less been suspended. They were never they were never said to their audience, "Hey, I don't think I'm getting enough support. I'm just not going to do it." But they came close. I think David Anderson for instance said he needed a $200 per episode goal. And if he didn't reach it, then he effectively did suspend the podcast. He's done a few podcasts since then, but not many. So I started this as a for-profit enterprise. You know, I think if you look at all the other podcasts that are out there, you know, some have tried an affiliate model, which is, I don't think, sustainable. Um, so either Amazon affiliates or Bluehost affiliates. I have not done that. I don't plan to do that. It's a lot of work for very little money. So I've tried more a mixed model where we have audience support and also gated content the way that most newspapers have that you have a subscriber who gets premium content and you have uh, people that also get free content so the the gated content obviously is the bonus episodes and the audiobooks and the you know you get two audiobooks for a dollar right now i don't think i can keep that dollar pledge level forever but those that have, are at that are grandfathered at it uh and then you get more audiobooks if you go at a higher pledge level and you even get uh your name in the credits of the videos if you go uh at the captain or higher pledge level i'm not aware of any sailing podcasts that have adopted that model, but I am aware of YouTube channels that have. And I'll talk about YouTube and and what my views for the YouTube channel later on in the podcast here. The other thing that I and other current sailing podcasters have done 
said we've sold our own products. So I have a publishing business that has several titles and I have mentioned those titles on the podcast. Unfortunately, I don't make much per book sold. And so probably the median book sold is I'm going to make like $4 or something. And with a relatively small podcast audience, even if everybody bought a book, it's just not sustainable. But obviously, everybody doesn't buy a book. Uh, and so it's not that sustainable in terms of a model. And there, I have other form for ways I can advertise. For instance, I could advertise per click for uh, books uh, directly on Amazon, directly to buyers, get a good idea of how much I make per click and book uh, advertise. And it's a lot easier, don't have to do anything, don't have to work at it uh, compared to a podcast. So I don't think, you know, just running a podcast monthly to advertise my books makes a lot of sense since you've probably heard about most of the books that Ox River Publishing is, has published and have out as part of the podcast. And I've made those audiobook versions part of the reward for patrons. So uh, patrons are getting part of that premium content. So I don't think the premium content model, I'm not going to abandon it. I'm just not going to necessarily do a new bonus episode for every episode going forward. We already have over 40 bonus episodes that patrons can get in their patron-only RSSS feed along with the audiobooks. And so that's not going to change. It's just that I, I don't know that every new episode going forward will have a bonus episode. And I think I've pointed out in past podcasts that there are other podcasters that are selling much more high dollar products. So my most expensive ebook has gone for $9.99 and I get two thirds of the revenues for that. So maybe I make $7, $6 for that most expensive one. And some of them I make less than a dollar per sale at the regular price, not the promotional price that I might have told you about. The other podcasters who are selling their captaincy services or they're selling their brokerage services, conceivably that advertising has a much higher hit rate. So if they only get, you know, one in a hundred of their listeners to ever take advantage of that or one in a thousand, they'll make way more many, many times more than um, my publishing business can do advertising. So that in terms of the selling owned products, I just don't think I have the sustainable model. I, I am a Coast Guard license captain, but I have no interest in uh, either doing deliveries or in selling captain charters on my boat the way that some of the other podcasters have done. And so maybe that is the most sustainable model. Although I go back to my economics training and the, you know, the division of labor. And I think some people are probably better at creating podcasts and some people are better at being captains. And it's not necessarily that a captain is relatively good at, at uh, podcasting. And there may be some evidence of that out there. So while I have a very unprofitable media business, I think 
if you're a captain, you'd be much better served paying my very low advertising rates than doing your own podcast. Because as I said, the advertising rates are, what is it, $20 for a 30-second ad is my current rate versus uh, tens of hours to put together a podcast. And I think that unless you really love it uh, and have a lot of time on your hands, you're much better off spending the 20 bucks. But uh, nobody's done that so far, and maybe the transaction costs of that are too high. It's too hard for me to, to pitch constantly uh, advertisers, and so they have to either come on their own at this point or we'll just reduce the quantity supplied in terms of content. And I think I've pointed out what I don't like about captaincy services, whether people are paying for offshore trips or whether they are doing deliveries. In both cases, the captains are pressured to go offshore in less than desirable weather. And, you know, I don't want to be responsible for that. I think it's not something I would want to sell berths for if I didn't, I was under time pressure uh, to take people offshore because of their plane flights, their two-week plane flights or whatever. And, you know, generally when I'm looking for a crew I'm looking for a six-week commitment uh, so that because we do do offshore passages, we don't just do coastal cruising. I don't need crew for coastal cruising. I only want crew for offshore passage watchmaking. And for that, I have a, a big leeway in terms of time to do that. And But I don't think the people selling those captaincy services or the people doing the delivery have that leeway. And they have to go out in uh, much rougher weather than I would consider. Okay, so now I'm going to turn to uh, my plans for the YouTube channel. So I'm going to announce at the end of season two of the vlog, I'm going to stop with the monthly vlogs. And I've not decided what I'm going to do for season three. I intend to put out season three of the Round the World vlog, which will start in Tahiti and go to Tonga. And I think we already had a sneak peek of that with the whale swim video. But I plan to put it out. I might put it out as like one entire season released in short time periods. But I'm not going to release the episodes over the summer of 2019, the Northern Hemisphere summer of 2019, because it's just too much work. And I, it really didn't do that well uh, with me on our South Pacific cruise last year. So I don't see a reason to continue that. I only, you know, and I, I had a lot of trouble with that. I I had to re-edit all the videos right before departure to satisfy the, the needs of uh, one of our corporate title sponsors. Uh, and that was a big hassle that, you know, made my trip to Tahiti and the start of season three more hectic. So I'd just like to avoid all the, the complications of having a monthly vlog. You know, I think there's a lot of people out there that say having a schedule for YouTube is an important thing, and maybe it is for some people. I don't know that that's true for my channel. You know, I'm happy with what the YouTube channel has achieved, and it's achieved more than I expected it to achieve when I set out to do it, although the value of what it's achieved, I'm not as happy with as I thought I would be starting out. So based on uh, one of our podcast guests, 
her launch of her YouTube channel. You know, we started the vlog in August 2016. I think at that point, the YouTube channel had less than 50 subscribers. And we started the, the vlog, which we eventually went to monthly, released about three episodes in short succession. And my goal was a year from launching the vlog in August 2016 to hit a thousand subscribers. And by two, year two, that would be like August 2018 to have over 4,000 subscribers. I hit both those goals. Uh, but I would say not with the vlog, more with my news oriented coverage, uh, or my coverage of other YouTube channels. Uh, not from the vlog itself, although we've had some successful episodes. I plan to continue with the vlog. I just don't think I want to do another 20-episode season, a less than 10-episode season from here on out, and uh, maybe not on a regular basis. So I'm going to suspend the, the, the monthly thing as soon as we get done uh, with uh, season two, which is almost wrapped up at this point. Milestone that we've hit for the YouTube channel is 1 million views. I'm so psyched about that. That's more views than a lot of the YouTube channel guests that we've had on this podcast that we thought were amazing examples. So I think I'm very happy with a million views. Of course, there are many others who've got many more millions of views than we have, uh, but I'm just happy with that. And, you know, contrary to public opinion, what matters on YouTube is the views, not the subscribers. So a uh, million views, you get paid through views. You don't get paid through uh, subscribers, but you don't get paid a lot per thousand views or per million views. So you're not going to get rich on that. And so I would say our advertising revenues on YouTube are less than our Patreon revenues, which are less than our uh, the publishing revenues for the media company. I have no desire to, you know, push hard for, you know, my year three goal was to get a million views and 10,000 subscribers. I don't want to do that anymore. Uh, I, you know, I think that 10,000 subscribers is not really worth what you think it is. 4,000 subscribers was not worth, worth what I thought it was. You know, I think a lot of people start out and they think, well, if I get 100 subscribers, I'm going to get 100 views per video. Get 1,000 subscribers, going to get 1,000 views per video. And if I have, uh, you know, 10,000 subscribers, I'm going to get 10,000 views per video. It's true that we have more views per video than the number of subscribers that we have on the Slow Boat Sailing YouTube channel, uh, but it's not like we can put up any old video and get the number of subscribers. So if we have about 7,000 now subscribers, we can't get that uh, on a typical video. We have some videos that just go viral, and we have some videos that, you know, most of our subscribers never see. And, and that's the way YouTube works, that most of your subscribers will not see your video. And so unless you have a very good video that performs really well, you're not going to get that reach. And, you know, one of, I think our handicap is that I think the formula for the vlogs has been you have bikinis in the thumbnail and we can't do that. That's not the way we roll. We're not able to, to do that in terms of getting the clicks which you need to get the clicks to get the views. And I think that is something that um, Sailing Kitty Week talked about. But, you know, I, 
for instance, Sailing Kittle Week has more subscribers than we do. We have more views than they do. They make a lot more money from their Patreon than we do, about 10 times more from their Patreon. One of the reasons why I don't want to do the monthly vlog and also want to take a step back from the videos is that I think we're getting far less patronage on average compared to other YouTube channels. So I would say YouTube channel with our size should be getting uh, over $100 per video in patronage based on my academic study that I did in 2017. And, you know, we're getting a quarter of that or less. And, and so that makes it, you know, just less attractive to pump out the content, especially on a commitment basis. So uh, we're going to continue to make the vlog. Um, but the timeline, I don't know. And how many episodes, I don't know. And then other videos that we make, you know, my tendency is to say, yeah, I'm going to make videos that I think have the potential to go viral, but there are very few moments where those things are. So we have a very news-oriented focus to our channel that I think is unique. I think the vlogging space is just way over supplied. So there were probably about 200 active vlogs in January 2017 when I did my academic study looking at the, the YouTube vlogging for sailing channels. And, uh, you know, s since then, I think there's, a, there's probably a lot more, but I haven't dived into the numbers. You know, it's possible that, um, you know, Patreon will not be sustainable, right? It could be the next dot-com bust, Right. Uh, that and there may be a huge shakeout. I mean, when I did the study, I think there were maybe two channels of vlogs that that were over 100,000. And now there's over half a dozen that are over 100,000. And so for those winners, I think they they can support their pay their groceries and pay their boat voting expenses over 100,000 but certainly you can't with 10,000 and um, you know we're very close to 10,000 subscribers and we just get tiny tiny amount of money per video uh, you know I like editing video a little bit more than I like editing audio uh, but it's still it's still work and and so you know unless you you expect to get uh, a huge video and you never know, if one's going to be huge or not, you don't want to pump out a lot of uh, content. And it, I mean, the other thing is that it's, you know, the nice thing about YouTube is that you do have the advertising revenue built into the system, which you don't have with podcasting. So podcasting, you have to pay for your hosting and you don't get advertising. Uh, whereas YouTube, you do get advertising, although they've changed the requirements since I started a YouTube channel. I never had to go over these hurdles, but they started out that you had to have 10,000 views, and then they, they made it so you have to have 1,000 subscribers and 4,000 hours of watch time. And, you know, I really think the 4,000 hours of watch time is the more substantial barrier for most channels. Uh, and what that essentially means is that you have to earn your first $100 on YouTube before they'll start paying you, and then you have to apply. I don't. I didn't have to go through that process because I was already over a thousand subscribers when they put that in. I was always over the ten thousand subscriber or ten thousand view level when they put that in, and that's been superseded by the thousand subscribers and four thousand hours of watch time. You know, uh, I think there are, there's like a YouTube channel group on Facebook, and there's a lot, of, and you see this with all kinds of YouTube channels. There's this. Uh, a lot of people start up channels and they say sub for my channel 
and sub for somebody else should sub for you should sub mine and I'll sub yours. That sub for sub is against YouTube's policies and it's just a, a dumb way to create a channel because uh, you you want subscribers that like your content and if you're doing something where you're trying to get subscribers that are subscribing for other reasons besides that they like to watch your videos, they're really not worthless. They're they're worthless. They're less than worthless because they could get your channel shut down. Uh, we've always took the tack that uh, we want subscribers and viewers that want to watch our videos. Uh, and those are the ones that are valuable because it's because they're the ones that rack up watch time and it's watch time that leads to advertising and leads to channel authority that gets your channel promoted in the future. The problem is uh, with YouTube is that, like I've said, it's not as steady as podcasting that we get about we get over 2000 per episode about every episode except for the most recent episodes which are building their their listeners uh but with youtube you know you can have a video that we have videos that, that get less than 500 views in the first week and then we have videos that get 20,000 views in the first week you know it just depends um on the quality of the video and and really youtube does not promote videos that take people outside of YouTube, say, to buy a book, right, or to buy a t-shirt, uh, and so you can't really, or to go to Patreon, even. Uh, so those people clicking out actually hurt your promotion within YouTube, and obviously, like, a sponsored video is not going to do as well as a, a normal video that is based on the content that your audience loves, and so that, you know, that's the it's very hard to monetize beyond the advertising revenues of a, a YouTube channel. Patreon has helped with that, but uh, it's still, uh, you. I really think you need to get over that 40,000 subscriber mark where you can, before you can reasonably expect to start paying for your groceries <laughs> and uh, minimal boating expenses uh, for somebody that already owns a boat. I think, you know, sailing vlogging is less competitive than other vlogging because of the expense of buying a sailboat, outfitting it. Those are kind of like the prerequisites a lot of times. And so that reduces the number of people entering that. But there was a really good study, I think, by a German academic who looked at the different channel types. And so they put people, when they click, they create a video, they either classify it. And once you've classified it once, YouTube will auto-classify it for you. You classify it as either people or blogs. Um, so that would be, I think most of the vloggers will do that, or maybe you classify it as travel or sports or news, etc. And they looked at those different genres and the ones that were most likely to get to a million views. And they found that the ones that were most likely to get to a million views, the ones that were least likely to get to a million views were vloggers, that vlogging is oversupplied and there's not a lot of demand for it. So I would caution people that, don't want to start a sailing vlog thinking that they're going to be the next sailing vagabond or Delos or Gone with the Winds. There's a lot of people that just really never make a dime for the YouTube channel, spend a lot of money on it, spend a lot of time on it, and never recoup that. It's a, It was a ton of work. It's very hard to build to 100 subscribers, very hard to build to 1,000 subscribers for most people. And beyond and beyond it never it doesn't necessarily get easier 
But if you want to document your travels and have a place to store your videos for free, that's fine. But I don't think it's a reasonable expectation to think that that's going to in any way support your lifestyle. That You'll be supporting your YouTube channel. It won't be supporting you. And the vlogging format, I think, is the least likely format to be successful on YouTube. So I'm pretty happy that we have the highest subscribed, most views of any active sailing podcaster's YouTube channel. And, you know, we did that not just focusing on story, but also by making content that is goes beyond than something purely than slapping up a podcast. So most of the over 100 videos don't have any podcast interviews in them, and they are totally separately produced from the podcast. They're highly edited, visually exciting videos about topics that cruising sailors care about. But if you look at our views, and I think this is pretty typical for most YouTube channels, most of our views, 80 to 90% in a given month, will come from non-subscribers. So it's not the same people that are watching our videos. There's always new people coming in that are watching the videos, and repeat viewing is fairly rare, unlike with the podcast, where I believe that most people are repeat listeners. All right, so I'm pleased to announce that we've got three titles now on Audible, three audiobooks. And I think the first one I would recommend is somebody who's already signed up for Audible for their monthly subscription or who would like to sign up and get their first audiobook free. I'd recommend Slow Boat to the Bahamas, which is a funny look at sailing to the Bahamas with a four-year-old and a four-pound dog. It's narrated by the wonderful voice actor Brian Handigas, and it's written by me. He's a much better narrator than I am, and I'm hoping that when we do the movie version of Slow Boat to the Bahamas, I'll be played by Hugh Jackman. So it makes a big difference to the podcast, and it costs you nothing extra if you follow the link on the podcast description. So if you go into your Apple Podcasts, and I know most of you go to Apple Podcasts, and then click on the episode, and then click on the three dots, and then click at the top part that has the album cover, the art for the episode, and that should bring you to the description, and then you can click on the links in the description in Apple Podcasts. If you've never got an audiobook from Audible, you can sign up and get your first audiobook free. If you're already a subscriber, I'd also recommend using that link, and it'll not cost you a thing, but helps out the podcast tremendously. The titles you could choose are Sailing the Ogre, The Log of a Woman Wanderer by Mabel M. Stock, or Sailing to Treasure Island, The Cruise of the Zora by Captain J.C. Voss. Thanks for listening. I'm Linus Wilson. Have some fun on the water. Bye-bye. Until next time. Hi, I'm Jana Wilson. Thank you for listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Subscribe to our free newsletter at slowboatsailing.com.